The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Well, good to see you tonight. Glad to be in God's house once again and appreciate the honor and the privilege of preaching from God's Word. So if you'll take your Bibles and open them to Exodus chapter 30. Tonight we are, this afternoon, we're going to conclude our study of the altar of incense. And the description of this altar is in Exodus 30. And we've read parts of this several times. So I'm not going to read these first 10 verses again. I do want to... Uh, Samuel, if you'd show us the picture there, that uh, the description of this picture is in those first ten verses. And I want to remind you of the significance of this altar is the representation of one of the most precious of all Christian graces, and that is the grace of prayer. It has outstanding benefits for the believer, and also it very much pleases our God. God gave us prayer for fellowship and for worship. God made us people for fellowship and prayer is, and worship and prayer is one of those means that God has given. So we communicate with God. We, in prayer, we worship by acknowledging in our prayers deep dependence on our Lord. And I think that prayers should begin that way. They, they should begin with who God is and our dependence upon Him rather than a list of all the things that we want from him. Those of you that are familiar with the Acts acrostic, that first, that letter A at the beginning says adoration. And there's a recommendation in that, that we begin our prayers with adoration of the Lord. And we see that so many times in the Psalms, in the way that David prayed. There are many examples of it. Uh, Some that are typical are Psalm 8, Psalm 9, Psalm 19. These are prayers that begin with praises. Psalm 8.1 says, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth, who has set thy glory above the heavens. Psalm 9, 1 and 2, I will praise thee, O God, with my whole heart. I will show forth all thy marvelous works. I will be glad and rejoice in thee. I will sing praise to thy name, O thou most high. And in Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God. And the firmament showeth his handiwork. That's the psalmist in prayer. And you can imagine that the Lord would be pleased with those kinds of prayers as they acknowledge his greatness while at the same time they accede to our human weakness. Psalm 8 goes on to say, When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him and the son of man that thou visitest him. Now, if we learn anything about the altar of incense, we do need to learn this, that God desires our prayers. Whatever God commands, he desires. In Ephesians 5, verse 1, Paul speaks there of the good pleasure of God's will. Whatever God does is for his good pleasure. And prayer is certainly, without question, one of those commands that very much pleases our God. And what we ought to learn from this is when we don't pray, that God is displeased. We, we need to know that side of it. And yet prayer is one of the hardest disciplines for Christian people to maintain. Prayer really ought to be the simplest thing that we do because it doesn't require 
uh, us to go out and slay dragons to be close with God. It doesn't require great sermons to be preached. All it requires is very simple communication from any place that we might be. And God is pleased with it. So he gave this command for Moses to build an altar. And this altar is a revelation of God's heart. That God wanted his people to seek him regularly. Incense was offered on this altar both morning and evening every day. And this is the way the people knew that the priests that were on the inside of the tabernacle were always interceding to God for them. Always listening. God's always listening for those prayers to be made. And all of that is just a token of the continual intercession of the Savior for his people before God's throne. This is most interesting that David Hyde in his book, God in Our Midst, wrote, This is a wonderful truth about our God and our relationship to him. The altar of incense gives us a glimpse into his thoughts, attitudes, and desires toward us, his people. Put into its greatest context, the God who is eternally self-sufficient and who needs nothing beyond himself, that's his attribute of aseity, proclaims to us in his word that he actually desires, indeed he is eager to hear us cry out to him. And I think it's interesting that God even creates the circumstances that cause us to cry out to him, to plead with him. In 2 Thessalonians 1, 4, and 5, which we've studied just recently, Paul said, So that we ourselves glory in you in the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that ye endure, which is a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God, that ye may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which ye also suffer. So in other words, Paul remarks there that persecutions and tribulations are the means that God uses to purge you And to demonstrate that you are counted worthy of his kingdom. And then he also went on to write that tribulation works patience. That tribulation strengthens your endurance. And what is it that we always do in our tribulations? What do we always do when we have trials? We call out to God. We pray. So hardship increases the frequency of our prayers. Can can we not say that's by God's design? God wants us to come to him. And so as we continually pray, we grow, grow closer to God. We learn more about our Savior. Tribulation increases our knowledge of Christ. And trials increase our knowledge of what God wants from us, what God desires from us, and that is that closeness of fellowship. So what we ought never to do is complain about trials. I know we're complaining people. We usually do that when something's difficult for us. When it's hard, our minds just go crazy. But what God is doing is increasing that intimacy of fellowship because it causes us to come to him in prayer. So our lesson from the altar of incense does concentrate on prayer. Um, This is its purpose. And we've noted throughout scripture that the burning of incense is typical of prayer. As incense burns, there is a sweet smell that fills the room as the fragrance wafts up to God. People outside of the tabernacle could smell that incense. And they knew the priest was in there interceding for them to God. Well, we want to go on with this study of prayer. This is the practical application of this aspect of tabernacle worship. And I want to continue for just a few minutes here um, 
talking about incense. So if you look in verses 34 to 38 of this 30th chapter, here's where we read about the incense that goes on the altar. Exodus 30 and verse number 34. And the Lord said unto Moses, Take unto thee sweet spices, stacti and onica. Um, Lord said unto Moses, Take unto thee sweet spices, stacti and onica and galbanum. These sweet spices with pure frankincense, of each shall there be like weight. And thou shalt make it a perfume, a confection, after the art of the apothecary, tempered together, pure and holy. And thou shalt beat some of it very small, and put out of it before the testimony in the tabernacle of the congregation, where I will meet with thee. It shall be unto you most holy. And as for the perfume which thou shalt make, ye shall not make to yourselves according to the composition thereof. It shall be unto thee holy for the Lord." Whosoever shall make like unto that to smell thereto shall even be cut off from his people. Now, in the 34th verse, there are four spices that were perfectly blended to produce the aroma that was desired. These are stacti, onica, galbanum, and frankincense. Now, of those first three, there's very little description in the Bible about them. And so that makes it a little bit difficult for us to assign type of, typological meanings to them. And I hope you understand that when we study types in the Old Testament, some of what we talk about is, is conjecture, uh, or uh, you might even say at times best guess, because some of these things aren't glaringly obvious. Others are abundantly clear because they're repeated so many times in Scripture. And so commentators will make suggestions about these different things, about what they may mean. And if nothing else, those suggestions are, are good. They're good for revealing certain aspects of the Savior's work. And what I'm trying to say is that when those suggestions are, are drawn from things that we know that are absolute truths about Christ, even though they aren't things that may, may be concrete, yet they're very helpful, they're not harmful. And so we do well to examine these very carefully about what they may represent. And they definitely represent something because God is not arbitrary with his commands. There are some things that we know about these spices. They are mostly made from plants, although this one, Annika, probably wasn't. And they represent the best of the plant. They represent the most useful part of these plants, which typifies everything superlative in Christ. So we'll take just a few minutes to describe these before we go on. The first one we see is Stacti. Uh, no one knows for sure what this is, and there might even be other words in Scripture that refer to this same plant, but we do know the Hebrew word. And the Hebrew word is Nataf, which means to drop. It means to distill. And it's taken from the drops of gum that's produced by the tree. And we used to have the pine trees out around the parking lot. There were many of you that liked to pull your car up under those trees in the shade to keep the car cool. But at the same time, you also got pine sap all over your car. And that's that pine sap. That's the, the, the uh, sap that distills out of the tree that drops from the tree. And that's the thought that we have here. In Judges 5 verse 4, this is the same word that's used for rain. Lord, there it says, Lord, when thou wentest out of Seir, when thou marchest out of the field of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens dropped. The clouds also dropped water. 
That is this Hebrew word, dropped is natav. And to show you how we take things like this and work our way through the understanding of typology, especially as it relates to Christ, we read in Job 29, verse 22, the same word, natav, is applied to speech. There, Job says, after my words, they spake not again, and my speech dropped, natav, dropped upon them. Again, in Song of Solomon 4, verse 11, it also refers to speech. Thy lips, O my spouse, drop as the honeycomb. Honey and milk are under thy tongue, and the smell of thy garments is like the smell of Lebanon. So how do we take this, this sweet fragrance, represented by this word natav, and apply that to the words of Christ? Because the scripture, as we've just read, uses this term as speech. Well, in Luke 4.22... It says, and all bear him witness and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. Again, in John seven forty six, the officers and priests of the scribes and Pharisees wouldn't lay hands on Jesus. And do you remember what their excuse was? They said, never a man spake like this man. And I think that's a very good inference that Jesus spoke with the fragrance of incense that was made from sweet gum. Then this gum was obtained by piercing the bark of the plant and stripping it away. And so with Christ, he was pierced with hatred of those that crucified him. They mocked him. They spat on him. They stripped him of all of his clothes and left him naked. And yet the Bible shows that there's none of that that was done to him that caused him to speak harshly. He didn't call down angels from heaven to destroy those that crucified him and set him free. Another example of drops is when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. And there it says he sweat as it were great drops of blood. He agonized in the garden. On the cross, the drops of blood came from his hands and from his feet, from the crown of thorns that was pressed into his brow. And what did that do to him? Still, it never caused him to cry out. He still had it in his heart, nothing but this. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. So Stacte, just as we see there in the Song of Solomon, is the sweetness of the honeycomb, and that is applied to the compassionate words of Jesus. Then we have this second fragrance. This is Annika. This is not from a plant, but it's believed to be extracted from the crushing of shells of shellfish that are found in the Red Sea. And the crushing of these shells yields a sweet-smelling perfume. Well, that presents, no one really knows the full meaning of the word anika. So we're going to resign ourselves just to say this. There are many things in the Bible that we can't understand, that we don't know, and we won't know until we're perfect. And that comes when we're in heaven where we'll know all the words of Jesus because the Word of God says all those words are preserved. Now, thirdly, is galbanum. And this, this one seems to defy the types of the others because we do know exactly what this is. This is a gum that's obtained from eastern Africa and Arabia that's very bitter. It has a very nasty odor. But they mixed it with these other ingredients to smooth them out and to stabilize that sweetness. You ever smelled something that was just so sweet you really couldn't stand it? Or you ever eaten anything that was so sweet you couldn't just stand to taste it? You think sweetness, well, that's very good, but there's some things that 
just aren't good if they're really, really sweet. So the galbanum is used to balance that out, to smooth it out, to make it where it's, uh, where it's uh, acceptable to the, to the smell. And uh, the interesting part of it also is, is that galbanum was used to keep away vermin, keep away reptiles. It was also used as a medicine. You think about that. Well, how do you make that fit into typology about Christ? I mean, something that's repulsive, something that, you know, just stinks so bad, you might say. And what people have done to try to explain it is to say, well, this applies to those who have no heart for Christ. They're people that, that see, they, they believe that Christ is repulsive. They don't see any goodness in him. Uh, he wasn't applauded by the scribes and the Pharisees. The goodness of Jesus Christ didn't attract them. They were repulsed by it because what happens? When you take the goodness of Christ and you place it up next to them, how do they fare? Not very well at all. So they didn't want to be measured by Christ. They hated him because of that. I think this is what you might call the pungency of perfection. And that was like pouring acid on the skin. It revealed the heart. And to those who are confronted with their sins, this is what you most often find. People get confronted with their sin and they don't want to turn from it. Instead, they just hate the messenger. They don't see any value in Christ until their hearts are changed. Then you might do well to remember this as well. The scripture says, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. One is vermin, one is a reptile, but the other receives grace from the heart of God. Who makes the difference between those two? Who makes the difference between Jacob and Esau? Only God. Jacob will be drawn to him. Esau will be rejected. Does Esau desire him? Does Esau want to come? No, never. Esau represents those who never have a desire to come to Christ. And so it's not that just God arbitrarily chooses who can and can't come. It says, no, you can't come. They don't want to come. They have no desire to come. They make excuses not to come. So Galbanum may, may represent these qualities of Christ that naturally repulse people, while at the same time is attractive to those who see these life, this life of his that's blended with perfections. Then fourthly, there's frankincense, and there are few uses of the other ingredients in Scripture, but frankincense is quite common. Uh, the root word for frankincense is white. When pure frankincense is burned, it burns white. The gum from which it's extracted is white. And frankincense is also an antidote for poison. So we really don't have to struggle very hard looking for the typology here. Because how many times does white represent purity? And isn't it the purity of Christ that stands out against the poison and the blackness of sin? Frankincense is a spice with a very lovely smell. It was used in other places, like in the meat offering. And we studied the table of showbread not long ago. And you remember there was some frankincense that was placed on the table of showbread. Frankincense also speaks of Christ's excellence. The wise men brought frankincense at Jesus' birth because they knew that he was born to be a king. And when does he come into that kingdom? Well, he comes into it in the millennium. And that's when the purity of Christ, the holiness of righteousness of Christ covers the entire earth. So frankincense represents the purity of Jesus Christ. 
But we notice in the text that these spices were mixed in perfect proportions. This is something that took the skill of an apothecary. The proportions are are perfect with no ingredient that's too great. Uh, not in too great a proportion because that would just upset the balance. Now, I've just spoken to you of galbanum and the pungent order from it, uh, odor from it. Well, what would happen if you had too much galbanum? Then you lose all the sweetness of it. And so uh, they, the apothecary perfectly balances all these. And so this applies to Jesus Christ as well, that he was perfectly balanced in his character. His strong rebukes were tempered with compassion because at the same time that he could speak out against a person's sin and teach about hell and tell people you're going to die and go to hell, he turned right around in his mercy and his compassion, invite them to come to him in repentance and faith. He gives forgiveness. The scriptures says that Moses was commanded that no one should make this special incense for any other purpose. Samuel Riddout wrote, No perfume like that of the incense could be manufactured by man. Hence the blasphemy of those who talk of imitating him or who degrade him by coordinating him with, we do not say prominent characters in history as Buddha and Muhammad, but Moses or Elias or one of the prophets. No, this incense was but for one purpose, to be put upon the golden altar and to shed its fragrance before one who alone fully knoweth the sun. An eternal hell is the portion of those who refuse to give the Christ of God his true and only place before God. I really like Riddout's comment about not coordinating him with Moses and Elijah. I think it's a very interesting point that he makes. Remember, Jesus asked his disciples, he said, who do the people say that I am? And he asked the same question to them, who do you say that I am? And they replied, well, some say that you are John the Baptist. Risen from the dead, John had recently been beheaded. Some say that you're John the Baptist, you've come back from the dead. Some say that you are Elijah. Some say that you are Jeremiah or one of the other great prophets. And that was a very high estimation of Jesus, it seems. Because what they did was they put him on par with the Old Testament prophets. But according to scripture, that's just not good enough for Christ. The people call that a compliment, but it was a wholly inadequate assessment of Jesus. There is no one who compares to him. You can't make a concoction like Jesus. Nothing matches him. So no one was ever permitted to make strange incense. Exodus 30, 37 to 38 says, And as for the perfume which thou shalt make, you shall not make to yourselves according to the composition thereof. It shall be unto thee holy for the Lord. Whosoever shall make like unto that... To smell thereto shall even be cut off from his people. Well, all of these things put together present a very good idea of how important that incense was to worship and how Christ is wrapped up in this, in this picture of prayer as sweet incense. Well, that brings us to the outline that you've been patiently waiting for. And I'm not going to be too long with you tonight to finish this up. Uh, We have discussed in previous weeks the prominence of prayer that's indicated by the position of the altar right in front of the Holy of Holies, right beyond the veil, just uh, inches away. There is the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat. There is the glory of God. Then it was also prominent by the power indicated 
uh, with the horns that are on the altar. Then we also spoke of the presentation of prayer. The right to pray is because of the sacrifice that Jesus Christ made for sin. And through that sacrifice, he reconciles us to God, which means only the saved have the right to pray. Only the reconciled would be heard. So prayer reminds us that we've sinned, that we are imperfect, that we must come to God and we need God in our everyday lives. So now we finish with this, with this third observation and that is the propositions of prayer. Often when we're in a tragedy, when we experience some trouble in our lives, our friends will say, I, I'll pray for you. People come into the church and some of them will stop at the door and talk to some folks and explain things that are going on in their life and someone will say, well, I'll pray for you. You may remember we discussed prayer as worship on Sunday morning a few weeks ago. And uh, I said this phrase, I will pray for you, is usually used as a means to get rid of people. When you're tired of listening, you don't want to hear anymore, you say, oh, okay, I'll pray for you. It's like somebody asking, how are you doing? Most people aren't interested in how you're doing. That's just something you say, you know, get a conversation started or end a conversation. How are you doing? That's all you want to, that's all you have to say. Sometimes you hear this on the, on the news. Uh, some tragedy happens and the newscaster will say, our thoughts and our prayers are with you. When really our thoughts are immediately onto something else, that's the next news story. And the prayer rarely materializes. But when Christians say things like this, I will pray for you, we ought not to speak of prayer frivolously. Prayer is a very important part of our faith. Prayer is sacred to God, and prayer also should be to God's people. But sometimes what we do is we want to demote prayer to a position that's lower than other work we might do. For example, some will say, well, Pastor, I can't really do much in the church but at least I can pray. Well, that wouldn't pass muster with Jehovah God in the Old Testament. And it wouldn't pass muster with Jehovah Jesus in the New Testament. Many, many times, too many times to count, prayer has been powerful in accomplishing God's will. Same day I was working on this sermon, I just finished reading in the scriptures about Hezekiah and Manasseh. Manasseh was Hezekiah's son, these are two kings, but they are polar opposite kings. Hezekiah was a righteous man. He reformed Israel's worship. He did make mistakes, but mostly he honored God. And when Hezekiah was about to die, he sorrowed and he prayed. And then God added 15 years to his life. Now, in some ways, we read that story and we think, well, of course, God would do that because Hezekiah was such a righteous man and we don't think too much about that. Yes, he answered the prayer of a righteous man. But on the other hand, you have Manasseh. He was as wicked as you could get. He put heathen idols into the temple of the Lord God. He took his son and, and sacrificed him in the fire to one of the, one of the idols of a false god. Manasseh had no outstanding qualities. And so as punishment, God had him taken into captivity, sent into exile but while he was there, Manasseh repented. And, and guess what? We, we think Manasseh, well, he has, he has no chance of getting any favor from God. What happens if Manasseh prays? 
But Manasseh did pray and God heard his prayer and that prayer was powerful and Manasseh was restored to his position as the king and then he went back and he cleaned up all of the mess that he made in Judah. And I promise you, neither of these men thought, well, if prayer is all I can do, then I might as well pray. Remember how serious that prayer is to God. Oh, I notice our congregation is getting older. Did anybody else notice that? Uh, we're getting a little bit older, and some folks can't do the physical things around the church that they used to do. Maybe you can't go out and mow the lawn. Maybe you're too sick to teach or preach, but that's okay. Because if you tell me, I'm praying for you, I'm praying for our church, that's good. I mean, I can't expect any more. Nothing tops the prayers of God's people. But at the same time, it doesn't mean that it's okay for everybody else to sit down and we'll just sit here and pray about things. Oh, we still need to work. And one of the things that prayer does, prayer leads the person who is sincere in his prayers, it leads him into work. It sanctifies him to the work of God. That's what he wants to do. So we don't stay away from the Lord's work. We get involved in it, engaged in it when we pray. The able-bodied are enabled by prayer. Now, very quickly, let me give you three last observations concerning the proposition of prayer. Propositions. The first one here. Pray at the right time. Pray at the right time. Now, the priests were required to burn incense on the altar every morning and every evening. And it was done at the same time that the wicks in the lampstand were lighted. Now, the light... Uh, The golden candlestick, the golden lampstand, that was to burn continuously. But after several hours, of course, the oil in the lampstand would be depleted. The wicks would need trimming. And so the priest would come in and he would tend to the oil and he would light the lamps both morning and evening. And each time that he lighted the lamps, he also offered this incense. And that is symbolic that as long as the light shines, prayers are to be offered. That is, as Christ is our light, and he's always interceding for us, and we are always his children. We always are his children, so we ought always to pray. And when you understand that, then you can relate it to Paul's teaching in 1 Thessalonians. There he said, remember 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. Now that's one of the shortest verses in the Bible. But we don't spend a whole lot of time thinking about why did Paul say pray without ceasing? Is there anything more to this than what we see there in that chapter, just that one little short phrase? Well, in fact, there is. Paul was a doctor of the law. He knew the Old Testament forwards and backwards. He knew what the Old Testament types and figures represented. Paul had divine insight into all of this because he was the apostle of the mystery of the church. And so he had to know how to relate the things that we read in the Old Testament to the New Testament church. He had to know what is the purpose of those things that are written in the Old Testament. And it happens that this thing about incense and praying without ceasing figures into what took place in the Old Testament. Because the lamps and the incense were always burning, it would destroy the type if Paul said, pray occasionally, pray when you feel like it, pray when you're not too busy. Praying without ceasing reflects the seriousness of the priest keeping the lamps and the incense burning. Now, Paul knew what they did in the Old Testament. 
God expected the prayers to keep going because Christ makes this continual intercession. So he brings that right into the New Testament. says, pray without ceasing because that's the example that God sets for us in the Old Testament. When is the right time to pray? That's an easy one. Every time. All the time is the right time to pray. In every phase of life, we plan what we're going to do. We plan our meals. We plan our jobs. We plan recreation. We plan our sleep. Why don't we also plan our prayers? Pray without ceasing. We describe it as an attitude of prayer, and it is. It's the heart that is stayed on God so that the mind is always ready for communication. Now, secondly... We're to pray for the right things. I mentioned at the beginning that we shouldn't start our prayers with just a laundry list of requests. If what we want, if that's foremost in our minds instead of the glory of God, then we will pray wrongly and we'll ask for the wrong things. James said, ye ask and receive not because ye ask amiss that ye may consume it upon your lust." Proper prayers are prayers that are prayed in God's will. So if the purpose of our prayers is selfish, so that we pray for things that don't ultimately bring glory to God, then we pray wrongly. Now, it's even possible that we pray for very good things, but the reason that we pray for them is just the enjoyment of the good thing, and we're not concerned about whether it actually glorifies God. How can we use that thing for the glory of God? I'll give an example of this. I, I, I remember when I turned 16, I, I would come home from school every day on the school bus hoping that my dad parked a new car in the driveway just for me. I hate riding the school bus. And I knew when I got my license, I don't have to drive, uh, ride the bus to school anymore. I can drive to school. But I never got the car that I wanted because... I wanted the car mostly to impress Pam so that she would go out with me. And my dad had other ideas about what you use a car for. To him, a car is for the purpose of picking up people to go to church. So he saw my, my new ability to drive as a means of achieving his goal. That's to have somebody else to pick up people for church. Now he has another ride provider. And that's, that's what I did. My job the whole time before I got married was to pick up people and bring them to church on Sundays. So I had a regular pickup route. And there were so many times that I wished that my dad was like Jorge, that um, like Daniela, I could have my pick of cars. And he, and he did pick out a car, but he picked out for me an old VW bus with a Mako paint job. And I could get about 10 people besides Pam in there. So it was really a, a romantic, highly romantic vehicle. One of the most obvious prayers about the wrong thing is found in the Bible at the crucifixion. Did you know there was a prayer of salvation on the cross that was a wrong prayer? You think it's possible that you could pray a salvation prayer that was wrong or is wrong? Well, in fact, there was one prayed at the cross, and that was when one thief who was crucified with Jesus said to him, speaking to the Savior, of course, it's a prayer, so come down from the cross is what he said. Do you remember that? He said, come down from the cross and save yourself and us. That save yourself and that is us two thieves. And the, priest, uh, the thief prayed wrongly because he prayed to be saved by the life of Christ, not by Christ's death. 
Because if Christ had come down from the cross, nobody would be saved. Do you know uh, the damage that a selfish prayer can do? None of us knows the consequences if God answered sinful prayers. And so many of them are prayed, even by Christians. Now, thank God that he knows what you need, because what you need may figure into what everybody else needs. So we need to be thankful that Christ sanctifies our prayers by his intercession. Christ's intercession can clean up our prayers and make them fit to be heard by God. Often our prayers are clumsy. Many times they're selfish. Sometimes they're doubtful. But we have the Lord himself to to help us with that intercession. And the Bible also says we have the Holy Spirit. That's part of the work that he does. Remember the lamps and the oil in those lamps. That oil is emblematic of the power of the Holy Spirit and what he does in the believer's life. It's the presence and the work of the Spirit. In Romans 8, 26 and 27, Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we want to pay attention to that. It's according to the will of God. Not one prayer is answered that is outside the will of God. It is for his good pleasure. Now thirdly, we are to pray with the right temperament. Do you know why they burned incense? Well, I think you do. Um, do any of you have flavored candles at home? Do you have incense at home? Sure. Why do you light the candle? Well, if you don't, you can't smell it. So you light the candle. A candle never burns, never gives off the scent. Now, you think about that for just a minute, then listen to this verse, James 5, 16. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. That word fervent in the verse comes from the Latin fervens. It means hot or boiling. Just as incense was burned to make an odor, a prayer prayed with a hot or boiling temperament will be heard by God. Barnes says that the word effectual, that's not the best translation of this Greek word. He says the, the translators, well, I just told you Latin word, that's fervents, but Barnes says the translators should have used energetic. I've never seen a translation yet that used the word energetic. Some of them say a, the prayer of a righteous man is powerful in its effect. And that makes sense because when we think of an effectual, fervent prayer, we think of praying with intensity. We think of of praying with enthusiasm. And I think we could also add to that to pray energetically. And so this is the type of prayer that is powerful when it's prayed in the will of God. This is the type of prayer that would be like that of Hezekiah and Manasseh. And also in the scriptures, of course, in James 5, it's compared to the prayer of Elijah. So when you pray... Don't sigh when you pray as if prayer doesn't really mean anything. Well, prayer, when we pray, we have to pour out our hearts to God. God will answer. Just as the priest burned the incense because it released the odor, so a fervent, boiling, energetic prayer is the type of prayer that's remembered by God. Now, let me close the message with this final comment. The scripture says, if you care to read through that again in uh, Exodus chapter 30, that this altar was not an altar of death. 
There's a reason that God said, you are not to offer any sacrifices on this altar. He said, don't make any offerings on this altar. This altar is not a place of death. The brazen altar on the outside, that's the place of death. But here, here we're on the inside of the tabernacle and the smoke rises to show that Christ arose from the dead. And it rises to show that Christ is eternally alive to appear in the presence of God for us. It rises to show that Jesus is working now for his children, that he will continue to work, that his intercession goes on and on and on until that intercession is no longer needed. And when it's no longer needed, that's when we're glorified in heaven with him. And with that thought in mind, you have a reason to expect that God will answer your prayers. Hebrews tells us very simply this, because Jesus lives, because he has experienced all things that you're tempted with, because he's been through all that you've been through, it says, you can come boldly to the throne of grace. Have you been boldly, come boldly to the throne of grace? Jesus is there. He stands ready to receive lost sinners that come for salvation. And he stands there ready to receive the prayers of saved sinners that are there because they seek his will. That's what the altar of incense represents to us. Intercession on behalf of Jesus Christ, our Savior, on the behalf of his people, Jesus Christ intercedes for us always. And so God says, put an altar, a prayer altar in the tabernacle. Blessed be God for Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you in prayer. We close every service like this, preaching on Sunday afternoons with, with prayer, Sunday mornings, ending sermons with prayer. And we ask you, Lord, to bless the message that's been given. Well, we know that your word is the, is the way that hearts are changed. Um, it is the thing that, that, that works in us to make us different, to regenerate, and then to sanctify us for your work. Lord, help us that we would be people of prayer. Not that we just pray when we're in church. It's a good thing to pray in church. But as we mentioned in the sermon this morning, Paul encouraged people to pray both publicly and privately. And we need those prayers constantly, every single day, just as the altar of incense had the incense burning and the lights of the lamps were lit. Thank you, Lord, for Jesus Christ who came and died for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronan Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.